Welcome to Longitude Soundbites, where we bring innovative insights from around the world directly to you. Hi, I'm Louis Noel, and I will be your host today. We are exploring the approaches of individuals to contemplation, experimentation, and decision-making in scientific and creative fields. For this episode, I had an opportunity to speak with Dr. Roland Pettit. Roland is a physician scientist with experience in venture capital. Previously, Roland was an MD-PhD student at Baylor College of Medicine and an MBA student at Rice University. I was interested to learn why he earned multiple graduate degrees, so we started our conversation with that before diving into how science is funded. Enjoy listening. You studied biophysics as an undergraduate at Duke University, then went on to Baylor College of Medicine, where you earned an MD and a PhD in bioinformatics and artificial intelligence. You also received an MBA from Rice University while at BCM. Why did you choose to pursue an advanced degree in business while already pursuing advanced degrees in science and medicine? Well, thanks, Lewis, and thanks for having me on. I mean, this is this is a really great question, and it was one that I debated at the time. I mean, I definitely do believe in the value of formal education. Um, you don't know what you don't know, and I have tremendously benefited from having you know incredibly smart people take the time to frame things and explain things to me. So you know, the 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 blanket answer is I was I was just curious, um, but the the formal answer would be, you know, I I really wanted to understand the commercialization process. Um, I had at that point, this was 2019 when I was considering it, I started in 2020, but I had done uh, a good amount of medical school and uh, PhD graduate school, and I had seen a lot of interesting innovation potential, both in science and medicine during training, both certainly in med device coming to market, but uh, when I started the PhD, frontier science and its clear applications to both human health or agricultural science, et cetera. And I, I didn't really understand how people thought about bringing those to market. I was certainly getting to see how people were reacting to that, how they were, you know, performing clinical trials to test it or um, think about rolling it out with informed consent and bringing it to patients or otherwise. But I just wanted to understand that. Um, so I, you know, took the next step and tried to think about if I did want to understand the business side of science and medicine, what would that look like? Um, I was in Houston. Um, which is has a Texas Medical Center, um, which is a huge medical center. I was very fortunate to train at Baylor College of Medicine, which is a top medical school, and uh, also pursue my PhD there. But right across the street is Rice University, which is an enormous resource, and they have an excellent entrepreneurship-focused uh, MBA program. Um, so mm-hmm. the, the long short of it is I was able to get a little bit of a discount as a current student um, and apply for their evening MBA course, which is still a, a MBA. It's just in person at night which gave me good flexibility to do my PhD during the day. And then from like six to nine at night, uh, learn about commercialization and just the overall business practices um, with some focus in medicine, but of course also just the general MBA training as well. So the long story short is I really want to understand how how you get from A to B, right? Not just say, hey, we have a product and here's how we're going to implement it responsibly 
uh, for, uh, you know, in science or for patients. And so that's what drove me to pursue the MBA uh, during my MD, PhD. That's an excellent overview, Roland. Um, we are sure to get into some of your work in those fields. Um, I'd like to start with a, a high level um, question. Could you briefly explain how research in science, technology, engineering, and math gets funded for both public and private sector projects? Lewis, I love this question. And uh, when you sent it to me, I, I was really excited to get to talk about it. This is one area that I do think I've had a front row seat in order to see all the areas of funding um, throughout all stages in the process. Um, and there's several different ways that we could try to think about this, but in the interest of time, I'll focus more on the practicalities of it. But um, I would, you know, if we if we need to, we can we can talk more into it. So let's start with what I, you know, maybe would consider more, you know, blue sky primary research for the sake of expanding, you know, human knowledge of the world. And that oftentimes, kind of the traditional heuristic would be that occurs in academia. Um, that doesn't perfectly hold true. There's plenty of big biotechs and others that are doing great um, primary science um, as well as startups. But uh, the 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 way the majority of the world works, I would still think would be would be in funding in academia, which oftentimes comes in the forms of grants. Then there is commercialization stage funding, which is kind of the bridge where you've got a partnership between um, academia and industry for some sort of um, commercialization with the two working together. Then there's return on investment models. So this would be kind of debt-based financing where you might get a grant that has some you know requirement to pay back the capital plus a little bit of interest. And then, of course, there's another area that I'm particularly interested in, which is venture capital and private equity, where you're actually going to commercialize a product fully and sell a piece of a company um, in order to uh, realize its value. So let's briefly touch on each of these, if I can. Sure. So starting in academia, right, um, this, in theory, provides one of the avenues for the greatest degree of uh, research freedom, where you know academics could you know do primary research on fundamental problems without having to be, you know, focused on some near-term milestone of translation of that science or commercialization of that science. This is just science for the sake of science. And that, if there's no necessarily immediate material realized gain, is primarily funded through the government, honestly, or individual kind of institutions like the American Heart Association or others, right? And the way that works is through grants. Um, these are federal grants delivered through individual agencies. So as part of the congressional budget, um, Congress will pass certain amounts of taxpayer-funded dollars that can go to the National Institute of Health, the NIH, the National Science Foundation, the NSF, or defense-specific organizations. And based off of where they put money allocations is where those grants can fund research in those areas, right? So the NIH is divided up into several institutes um, the biggest would be the National Cancer Institute, NCI, but there's all sorts of institutes for pretty much any amalgam of interesting processes. You know, there's one for kind of biomedical engineering. There's, you know, one NHLBI, heart, lung, and blood. Um, but basically the idea is taxpayer funding goes to these institutes, goes to these kind of, uh, so would go to the NIH or the NSF, goes to one of their institutes. And then those institutes receive grants from academia saying, hey, I would like to pursue research in this space. Um, and then a review process is done to review the merit of the that grant and what it's proposing. The grant is scored, and in golf, it's a, a lower is better. And then if your grant is lower than a certain threshold, let's say in the 20s or so, 
then it is um, considered uh, uh, acceptable or suitable for funding. It has made the funding pay line, and then funding is distributed to that academic institution. Um, that's a long process. Usually grants are reviewed three times a year, um, and it takes almost a year for them to get executed. So this is a long lead time. It is a good amount of money. You know, if you think about the primary grant, uh, an, uh, uh, an RO1 grant, this could be a multi-million dollar grant to a PI for three to five years for a certain research initiative. Um, the, the last point I want to make there before I move on is this is a big amount of money that's being transacted, and there's not actually um, a lot of, uh, you know, gatekeeping in terms of what has to come of it, right? Any Anything that's done research-wise, you have to attribute in your publication that this was funded by X, but there isn't some, there definitely isn't a need to pay that money back. It's just a pure investment in primary research. Um, and it funds and actually is what drives the research institutes you see today. So when you get a RO1 grant, you know, let's say you get a $3 million grant and it supports your lab for $3 million, what is little talked about but is true is that a portion of that grant on top of that money goes to fund the institute itself for providing access and administration fees for researchers. So if you, you know, bring a $3 million grant, you know, about 70% of that on top of it, depending on your institution, maybe, maybe, maybe a little less, about 60% on top of that goes as a direct payment to the, to the institution, right? So Baylor College of Medicine, my former institution who I love, brings in over $400 million of federal funding grants every year, which wants wow. their loans. But then about, you know, uh, some percentage of that goes directly to the institution itself. This is the budget item that allows it to run and allows our ac academic institutions to, you know, be interested in primary research, blue sky research that doesn't have a material uh, gain, yeah, um, yeah, immediately accessible at the end of it. So that's part one. So that'd be funding in academia with grants. <clears throat> Next would be these commercialization stage fundings. Um, there's a little bit of a bridge between here where we're still in the world of grants that don't you don't have to pay them back, right? There's still primary investments in science without some sort of debt or equity-based um, commitment. So these are what you might know as the STTR, SBIR grants. Um, so these right. are like small, you know, uh, technology transfer grants, um, et cetera. And so this is usually where industry and academia have partnered up. Usually industry leads these grants where you'd have, and I've been a part of several of these. Um, we've raised a couple million dollars through this avenue. But the idea is you're saying, hey, you know, there is some technology that's worth pursuing and has clear market potential. And so you pitch the same organizations. This is still taxpayer funded dollars. You know, it's still the NIH, the NSF or others. And you say, hey, you know, we've got this. Um, we see this technology that maybe is housed in a university based off of their, you know, IP portfolio. And we want to take it to market. So we're going to write a grant, similar structure. You still have your six page, you know, research strategy and aims. But you also add a six-page kind of market commercialization strategy of saying, here's how we're going to bring it to market. And if you win one of these grants, it could be they have like phase one grants, which is really, you know, smaller grants, 250K type grants for prototyping or initial um, kind of proving out your thesis. And then those can enable phase two grants, which would allow you to fully commercialize the product. Um, and this is an exciting avenue because it provides really cool opportunities for, you know, small startup companies to be able to pay, you know, big academic research institutions to have access to either their technology or some of their researchers on a part-time, you know, grant-funded basis to, you know, commercialize this together. Um, and we've leveraged that uh, previously several times. Um, this is notably, there's no 
return necessarily return for the government you know you get one of these grants it's 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 not free money you know there's there's definitely reporting necessary and you have to you know uh, meet your milestones and, and do what you said you could do um but there's no necessary um you know interest on this payment you don't have to pay it back and so it's a really good vehicle for startups when they're just getting started to um be able to work with uh um work with or out license or whatever um, technology from universities. So that's that's a, a really cool commercialization stage funding through STTR, SBR. Mm-hmm. That one level up from that, I'm kind of, in my mind, I think of it as like our return on investment models. This is pretty much, you could think of it as almost like debt-based financing. So debt-based financing would be, you know, you can go to a bank and you get a loan and you have to pay back that loan one day with some interest on top of it, right? That's the mm-hmm. model we're working with. Um, you know, I've worked in industry, um, and I've consulted for uh, um, a couple of companies, but but specifically for a company in Form AI, and we've used this before um, through the Cancer Prevention Research Institute of Texas, right? So CPRIT is a uh, kind of a state, local government-based organization, and uh, this is they provide commercialization grants or what they call product development research grants uh, in the similar vein, right? So in this case, it's still a partnership between industry and academia um, that industry is leading. And the CPRIT or whatever organization will fund that grant um, with some sort of kind of uh, uh, return expectation on the back end. These are still very favorable to the um, uh, kind of the operators in the sense that the expectation is revenue based. So the investment that you get, let's say it's a couple million dollars, uh, is an investment for you to take a technology to the market um, and then whenever you get product market fit and you're starting to get sales, there is a percentage of your sales revenue that you will return to the institution until you meet some threshold, right? So let's say you'd give 2% of your revenue um, indefinitely or whatever you want to frame it as until you pay back your initial capital, that $2 million investment or whatever, plus some bonus, if you will. Maybe it's a multiple of two. So you're going to end up paying the principal and one other version of the principal back to the institute. This is a really favorable financing metric still because, you know, as a company, you're only you're not taking on material debt in the sense that you have to pay back no matter what. It's only when you start achieving revenue that you'll share a portion of your revenue to pay off the debt. And then two, um, it's helpful because it's it's fixed in time, right? You're paying back a certain principal plus a bonus on that principal, and then you're done, right? There's no, you know, th- th- this institution isn't on your cap table or capitalization table. They don't own a portion of your company. They don't get rights to, you know, your your revenue indefinitely. And so it's a really good vehicle to spurn on initial investment um, as an early startup. So that that I'm kind of putting in the a des- debt-based financing category. It's one step up from just a pure, you know, go, no strings attached grant, uh, not no strings attached, but a, a go, no um, commercial return grant but it also is favorable in that you're not tied up with, uh, you know, equity-based uh, investing. And then finally, and this is the one everyone likes to talk about, and it's one that I'm very interested in and, and like participating in, is the world of venture capital and private equity, right? Um, so this is a very specific uh, mechanism for funding science, um, and it, it it does come with some constraints, right? So the idea here is, okay, you have some product that you think is not just making an incremental change, this is making a substantial change, that can drive serious market return uh, on the order of not just you know principal return, but maybe ten times the principal return. Then you would attract um, venture capital investors to come to the table and be interested in partnering with you on product development. So the idea is, 
let's say you want to commercialize quickly or you want to um, uh, have uh, a larger amount of resources up front in order to uh, uh, develop your product, then you might partner with a VC firm. Now, as I just described briefly with the kind of the debt-based financing approach, um, if you take on venture capital dollars, you're not selling some portion of your future revenue, right? That's not a buyout where you give them 2% until you've returned their capital um, plus some interest. When you partner with a VC firm, what you're essentially doing is you would say, I'm going to take this technology, I'm going to form a company, right? So there's a, a, a an individual institution that owns that IP or whatever, and you're going to sell a piece of that company in all of its future revenue potential um, et cetera, you're selling a piece of that company as an equity to this, um, uh, you know, institutional investor for a price, right? So you could say, Hey, I've got this sweet technology. It's going to enable X, Y, Z, you know, you know, we are a pre-seed or a seed stage company, which means we're early on in the process. So we'd be willing to give you 20% of our company or, you know, two to $5 million. Right. And the idea here then is that you are partnering, right? So this, you know, this usually comes with maybe um, that institutional investor taking a board seat on your company, or um, kind of getting to participate in other ways. But the the main idea is that you have engaged in a partnership that will last until you have some liquidation event, aka when some other company buys you and buys out their ownership percentage, or you have an initial public offering and the public kind of buys out the shares of your company. So <clears throat> that's a, a very attractive structure. It can enable, um, you know, really high quality change and bringing things to scale very quickly and efficiently. Um, but it does obviously come with the appropriate, but um, you know, uh, material constraints of you're giving a, a piece of your company and its future success for the benefit of having um, that capital now, but also having often the partnership of that institutional investment investor. At, at the table and all they can bring to the table in terms of their you know network or experience or ability to help shape your commercialization product, et cetera. So that was a maybe a little bit longer answer to your question, but I do think it's important to think through. You've got blue sky research or, or, or commercialization research in academia or private you know biotechs or others uh, that gets funding in the terms of, of grants. There's kind of bridge in between where you've got commercialization funding without constraints in STTR, SBIRs, You've got kind of debt-based financing with product development research that have some return on the initial capital plus, um, you know, maybe multiple. And then you've got on the final other end of the spectrum, venture capital or private equity investment, where you sell a piece of your company and its future potential um, for that capital allocation now. So that is how I think of the world in terms of um, how um, research is, is funded in science, technology, engineering, et cetera. Um, but would love to see if I've missed anything. Um, so feel free to reach out. But um, that's that's kind of the way I look at it. I, that was fascinating. I think you distilled it down. I mean, there is a lot packed into that question. Um, but the way you distilled it down, and I think you did an uh, you know, appropriate amount on each of those topics. And if you missed anything, I wouldn't know. Uh, you're clearly very knowledgeable about this. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed learning about that. Um, and I'm sure the audience will as well. Um, Let's take the venture capital side, um, since that's sure. what you primarily focus on now. Um, and we'll we'll do it a little example here. So let's say there's a private company developing technology considered to be uh, the next frontier of medicine. The company is pitching to investors in the hopes of raising money for its next stage of development. 
what are investors' thought processes to determine whether or not to participate in the fundraising round? This is a great question, and it's one that I think I would attribute my time at business school to helping me learn initially. You could certainly learn this on your own, but you know, in terms of one of the things that I did think that came out of my MBA is establish structured pro- thought process and getting to learn from other VCs in not only the life sciences space, but also in consumer and tech and, and other different areas of investment of how do they structure their thought when you're dealing with companies at different stages um, with different uh, layers of risk. Uh, that That's kind of, kind of the answer there. So I think, um, not to bleed into the next question, but the, the general idea is the way you think about this, and I'm, you know, uh, still a little bit green to the process. I've had a couple years of experience now that I'm very thankful for. But, um, uh, you know, from from what I've learned so far, um, the approach you take is to try to think about what is the seed, what what is the stage of the company? You know, is this just mm. you know the first pitch deck? You know, where you've got a scientist that's been a postdoc for a couple of years and they're literally presenting to you a science based pitch deck. Or is this a company that already has product market fit and they've got initial customers and they've got you know a, a balance sheet with cash in and out that you can you can think about? And so, in general, the the way that we think about the world is is what stage. And there's different different investors that like to play at different stages. There's people that feel like they're really good at, or that they would like to you know think about primarily you know calling the shots early, trying to understand you know what is the incremental change from you know directly just from the science itself, the, the early, the pre-stage, the pre-seed companies. And then there's other institutional investors that might have a little bit more business savvy. They know about the market and they would like to think about companies that are a little bit more mature, a little bit more de-risked, um, that are you know at, at, at later stages of development. But coming back to this question, this question you're asking about, how would you think about, think about evaluating a company that's pitching to you as an investor, right? I think best kind of model to think about, um, and this was actually something I learned at my time uh, at KDT Ventures, which is an excellent um, uh, uh, VC firm based out of Austin, Texas, and uh, particularly from my friend uh, uh, Patrick there. You know, he, he really likes to think about uh, layers of risk. And so the idea here is, you know, there are several different, you know, risks that can that can present themselves when you're looking at a company and it's okay to have a couple different layers of risk but if the layers of risk stack up to the point where there's many then you know at that point it might not be worth investing in them does that kind of make sense and i can go into the different layers of risk that we like to think about but just in general um you try to see which area of risk you you're willing to tolerate and if there's too many um then then you might not pursue the company at that time right and the layer of risk determines sort of what price you're willing to, you know, attribute to the company and the terms. Um, and I, I think this does bleed into our next question, which is thinking about the differences between early stage companies and late stage companies. So if you could, uh, I, I think you uh, explained it well enough where, um, you know, early on, there's a lot of risk involved with these um, pre-seed and seed companies. And, um, and later on, you know, it turns into more of a business sort of approach, um, analyzing the balance sheet and looking at, you know, maybe more long-tailed um, outcomes of the business uh, as a, as opposed to, um, you know, taking a calculated chance on 
an early stage company with their technology. Uh, I would say just maybe uh, briefly have some concluding thoughts on uh, you know, the layers of risk you see in an early stage versus a late stage company, and then we can move on to the next question. Yeah, sure. So that's that's a that's a great point. Um, so I think let's let's think about let's just identify the layers of risk very briefly, and and there's certainly more than what I'm going to list here. And then you could think about mm-hmm. how an early stage investor might think about those versus a later stage investor, right? So, you know, I, you know, as a you know physician scientist, you know, the first thing that I like to think about, whether it's the best thing to think about first or not, is up for debate. But the first thing I like to think about is the frontier science itself. You know, is this technology going to create an incremental change or some sort of transformative change. I think, you know, probably the, the first book or one of the first books a lot of people read when they're interested in, you know, uh, investing is Zero to One. This is P- Peter Thiel's book um, that has some pretty good uh, framing for what you might be looking at. Is this going to, is this science going to just build upon additional technologies or is it going to open up a new avenue um, for, uh, you know, uh, technology application there. And if, if it's the latter, that's where venture capitalists really get excited because, you know, there's there's plenty of white space to work with there. Outside of that, is this an incremental or a transformative change? There's, you know, of course, the layers of risk um, that, that some people like to think about Porter's Five Forces. You can look that up if you're interested. That, that's a, a business school thing where you could think about, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, competitors, new entrants, et cetera. But, 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 but peeling it back, let's, let's think about you know, uh, market viability and potential, right? Is there is there a market for this, right? There's there's tons of great science, and tons of great science that could lead to small companies that would make founders a, a lot of money. But is there a big enough market to where you could sustain venture style returns, right? People think of this differently, but if you're going to be a seed stage investor, you know, and you're going to put in a two million dollar check, you know, are you going to get out, you know? You know, seven, eight, ten times that amount when this company liquidates down the line in terms of either an acquisition or an IPO. If you can show that you're going to get these, you know, enormous returns, and some people even think bigger. You know, some people will argue that if you're going to put in, you know, uh, capital into a fund, that that investment should be able to return the entire amount of your fund itself. You know, and that's that's a little uh, extreme, I think, but some people really feel strongly about that. Um, but the idea there is. Is there a big enough market to where you can have venture style returns? Because if you can't sustain venture style returns, even if it's really interesting technology, it's not going to be a VC based investment. It might be a good debt financing based investment or bootstrap based investment where the, the where you can build it yourself and still have you know a very successful career as a founder. But 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 market 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 size is one that's that's kind of a thresholding uh, risk factor. Number two, so so. And the way I think about it, incremental change, just then just the thresholding, is there really a market here? And then two, three, and I, I I weigh this pretty highly, is team, right? I mean, uh, you know, definitely. Is, is this the team, like even if it's a killer idea, is this the team that's going to go execute on it? And sometimes, you know, I'm still, you know, growing in my experience in the venture world, but, um, you know, learning from the experiences of others and some I've seen myself. You know, you might have a really good idea and maybe not quite the team you'd want behind it. Or the counter, you might have a fantastic team that has a good idea that might be able to be refined into a great one. Uh, and so having a killer team, this is where, you know, repeat founders or, you know, uh, being able to show some some really strong um, moxie in terms of networking or otherwise can really help um, with your layers of risk there. Is this going to be a winning team? You know, people, you know, this is where 
if we're going to focus in on kind of the uh, frontier science-based approach and, and medical applications, there's a lot of focus on, you know, product risk, right? And, and, and regulatory risk. Is this process, you know, if you're going to build a drug, you know, is this, you know, change worth going through the, you know, 10-year product development pipeline with, you know, multiple phases of clinical trials? Um, you know, is, is that really what we see, you know, coming out of this or, or, or is, is that going to not work? You know, is this a product that has to go through the FDA that has no predicate um, and it might have difficult uh, difficulty getting through the, the, the technology and regulatory risk is another one. Um, and then, and then uh, last one, I think worth mentioning now is the competitive landscape. You know, I think there's certainly a fear of missing out that does, you know, even as, even if you're aware of it, it's hard to not have be influential when you're thinking about a company for investment. But what is the competitive landscape? You know, you know who's investing in these areas and and what do their companies look like? You know, I think, you know, I I personally like to think of. I don't know if you've seen the uh, the the um, kind of the image from I don't know one of the 2000s late 2000s Olympics where you got Michael Phelps and his competitor you know, swimming forward and just because their competitor looking straight next to you, you know, he, uh, that's right. Again, yeah. to, he took a second to look to the side and Phelps ended up winning. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of examples of the otherwise, but I do think about that, you know, just because there's competitors in your field doesn't mean that this can't be the winning take, especially if sometimes the second to market, you know, maybe has an advantage in terms of, um, you know, not having to do all the legwork of regulatory compliance and otherwise, and they can just get to work. Um, so there's 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 problems with that, but certainly it's worth appreciating the competitive landscape. You know who has mm -hmm. what, what is the, you know what is the funding stage of these companies? What are they working on, and where do we fit in, and where can we win? So just taking a step back, is this an incremental change? You know, is the market there? Is this the winning team? What are the layers of risk for technology development? You know, regulatory development, and then who who else is out there in the competition? And that's a pretty good initial take for. Um, for the layers of risk. Now, very briefly, um, you know, in terms of stage of development, uh, as we mentioned, if this is a, a and, and just to, I, I don't know who, who all the readership is here for the podcast, but just when we think about the stages of development, you know, when you first start a company, if it's just, you know, you and, and your friends or, or, or your co-founders or whatever, you know, and you put a pitch deck together, that's often, you know, uh, what's termed as a pre-seed investment, a pre-seed company, you know, a pitch deck and an idea, right? Once you maybe have a little bit of a technology or you've de-risked it in some specific way, then you might have a seed stage company where you're saying, hey, invest in this technology, this IP, this team, et cetera. The, 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 the stages build to where you know people think of series A, depending on your um, uh, what kind of field you operate in. Series A is where you have a product and you have some initial product market fit that you need you know, funding to go fuel that, uh, you know, drive that going forward to, you know, get additional customer attraction or to enable whatever uh, next stage studies you want to go through. And then it builds from there, according to the alphabet, you've got series A, B, C, D. And, um, you know, those later stage series D, E, and F, you know, those are seen most in kind of, I think, tech-based companies or some consumer-based companies where you have, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, Salesforce type companies where you're, you're having some, you know, B2B SaaS thing. And that's where you end up having these indefinite, you know, private financings into the series D, E, and F later before you get to an IPO because you're waiting for the right time to really take it to the public market and liquidate all of those previous investments. So with that framework in mind of seed to, you know, series whatever before a public offering, the early stage investors pretty much operate in this pre-seed to series A. Some can reach into the series B, but mainly pre-seed to series A. So these are 
you know, you know, uh, $100,000 checks to maybe, you know, a couple million to maybe tens of million dollar checks. That's, that's kind of the seed stage investors, right? And then the late stage investors, the series B and on, you know, these are, you know, usually 20, multiple millions of dollars of checks that you're investing in later stage companies um, to really just fuel their actual, you know, business execution. So with that in mind, you know, the appetite of an early stage investor is going to be totally different from the appetite of a late stage investor, right? So at the right. early stage, you know, you're really thinking about team, right? You've got some product that you think is, you've got some tech that you think is enabling, but really all you're betting on is that this is the right team that's going to go kick down the brick wall and bring this to something, right? So early stage investment, you're really thinking about the team. You're thinking more about the market potential versus the current market fit. You know, there's no way that you can do like a discounted cash flow or try to like estimate potential earnings. Like that's all kind of, you know, buzzing nothing at this stage, right? So really you're just trying to scope the market and say, hey, this is the market for, you know, radiation oncology delivery in the US. Here's the product codes. Here's what we can see potentially happening in terms of, you know, if you brought this to market and captured X percent of that market, you know, we would have, you know, enough money on to, to, there would be enough money to value the company high enough that we would get the returns we want right down the line. It's it's kind of back of the envelope. You know, you can use market comparables. You could say, hey, in you know, in biotech, that's a really good example. You know, these stage companies with these you know single assets are able to generate X upon whatever, and then you can you know gauge or estimate or or even do some modeling. But oftentimes, you're thinking about the overall market rather than market fit at the early stage. Um, and then you know the other things would be you know early stage investors are really have to be you know able to sit with their investments for a longer period of time, especially in the life sciences, especially in biotech, where you know you're gonna have to go through multiple stages of the clinical trials, et cetera. Early stage investors are usually thinking more on the like you know in, in life sciences um, you know seven, eight year, ten year time horizons to get that return on their investment, while later stage investors maybe it's the opposite. Um, and so th those would be in then regulatory pathway uncertainty. So certainly the idea that early stage, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot you have to figure out. You have to figure out maybe how to license and, 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 you know, uh, 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 take the IP out of a university. You have to figure out how to get it regulatory approved, right? These, these are layers of risk that an early stage investor might be more, um, willing to take on. Flip that to the later stage investment, right? You know, later stage investors don't really want any of that, right? You know, at that stage, if you're a Series B, C company, you know, you've probably seen several iterations of that individual team and you've probably, there's probably been, you know, as the company is worth, you know, maybe a couple hundred million of dollars on paper, you know, they've been able to attract and recruit top, you know, senior executives. Um, perhaps the CEO has, has made it the whole time and, and as a founder friendly investor, like that's, that's what my goal would be for as long as that sees fit. But certainly some of the other executive roles, there's really room for key strategic hires, right? You've hired that CSO that's worked at X stage company, right? You've, you've basically de-risked the team to where it's a really, anybody would back that team when you're at a later stage company, right? At that point, later stage investors are also looking for detailed financials and projections. This is where the MBA type stuff really does kick in in terms of you know detailed financial analysis, right? Looking at revenue, looking at burn rate, looking at um, you know, areas for optimization there. Um, that's the concern of the later stage investors, as I've seen it. I've never been a later stage investor. So, you know, this is just my understanding of it from business school and, and just being around the industry um, and trying to prepare companies to go through, you know, those um, later stage, uh, you know, investments. 
Um, but the later stage investors, they're looking for like a shorter time horizon, right? You know, they, they want a clearer exit strategy to where, you know, if they're going to put in tens of millions of dollars, they might not be looking for a 10x, you know, investment, a, a 10x return at that point. But if in two to three years you could get a, you know, a, a two to three x, that still would be, you know, very appreciable and meaningful for their firms. Um, later stage investment is traditionally where you see some of the, you know, the big private equity firms also starting to participate um, uh, more so than just the early stage, you know, institutional VC investors. So, you know, if I had to break it down very briefly, you know, early stage investors they're really focused on team market potential, you know, the feasibility of the tech. They've got a higher risk tolerance and they're looking at longer time horizons. Whereas later stage investments, you know, they're putting in a lot more money. They're, um, they they, they want to see a, a top tier team with proven product market fit. The product's in the market. It's generating revenue that's, you know, appreciable, that is predictable, that you can, you know, b build from or, or, or clearly build from um, that could scale. And they want to see, you know, more so detailed financial projections um, and, and clear strategies for exiting, clear, you know, plans for an IPO in the coming years to months or clear um, ability for acquisitions or partners, et cetera. So, so that's how I think about it in terms of the late versus early stage um, uh, in, investor base and, and how they might approach layers of risk. I already mentioned the disclaimer, but I've not yet been a late stage investor. I think that'd be a lot of fun uh, one day, but that's just the way that I see it as of now. I'm glad we dwelled on that question because you had a wealth of insight um, to share uh, in, in such a, you know, what would be a nuanced question, perhaps. I mean, it, it is very broad and, and there's a lot to speak to. And some of the points that you had in there are, are intrinsically important to the field. And there's just a lot to understand as a whole about it. And I think you very accurately um, summed it up. That, that's a challenging task to do for such a, you know, um, a complicated and, um, a complicated field with so many different variables and, and considerations. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's very exciting to listen to that. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, it's a fascinating one. And it's one of the reasons why I'm uh, so interested in focus on continuing to work in ventures because it's exciting. You know, I, I mean, just as a quick plug there, I mean, you know, if there's, there's the, the whole process is important, but you know, probably and arguably when done well and done within the bounds of uh, appropriate development, right. You know, you know, venture-based investing can be one of the quickest and most meaningful ways to bring meaningful technologies to market to patients. Um, Absolutely, quickly and at scale, right? So, as a as a physician scientist, that's really what drives me. Is you know, you look at you know wanting to develop drugs to help patients. The the, the way that's going to be done quickly and and safely, but the way that that's going to be done is through you know you know venture-based investing. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, it is a way, but through venture-based investing and then, you know, farm acquisition, et cetera, you know, the way that you can take, you know, innovative, innovating new, um, machine learning, deep learning, you know, uh, technologies for diagnostics or, uh, you know, uh, any of the hosts, and, and we'll talk about that later. So I don't want to preview that too much, but it, it is, is through venture perfect segue. Right. So that's, that's, that's why, that's why I'm excited about this space and love getting to be a part of it, even in a. A small way. Mm -hmm. So there's two sides to this coin of innovation, uh, and like I said, I think this is a perfect segue. Uh, let's shift from the business side and the finance powering the innovation um, to the science behind it. Um, and you've also been working in this as a physician scientist. Um, you are involved in cutting edge uh, research, um, and particularly 
involved with bioinformatics and artificial intelligence. Could you share an overview of those fields and your current work within them? Yeah, absolutely. This is something I'm, I'm very passionate about. Um, for context, as you mentioned, I did my PhD in quantitative and computational biosciences. Um, this this is was focused on several different subfields, right? So I got to touch and be meaningfully a part of bioinformatics, computational biology, machine learning, and deep learning. And particularly, my the, my PhD thesis focus was focused in the world of statistical genetics, genetics, et cetera. Um, but you know, maybe just to take a, a, a step aside here, you know, this is, I think, the cutting edge in terms of what will meaningfully drive change in the life science and biotech ecosystem uh, for for the for the for the near future. And anybody that's listening to this that um, is you know interested in a, in a STEM field, I think, has to absolutely take a serious consideration to getting this skill set. Um, I'll, I'll take a, a, a quick. Aside here, you know, when I was a, a medical student and uh, was actually joined as an MD only student, and then applied and was able to join the PhD part and do the MD PhD training. But when I was considering doing this, right, uh, it was honestly kind of scary, right? At the time, you know, computational biology, bioinformatics, these were like big bad, you know, math and coding based skills, which I hadn't really touched in a long time. I did biophysics at Duke and, you know, I had done an intro to programming, you know, Python 101 course at Duke. And I had a little bit of math background. I had done linear algebra and all that uh, through my biophysics. But that that was like, you know, I guess five years ago at that point when I was applying to the PhD program. And so it was kind of scary. And I'm just trying to think about my reflections there. And if I could encourage anybody looking at that field, right, it was unbelievably worth it, right? My journey was that I, I you know, had to put a little bit of elbow grease, learn how to code, um, learn statistics, you know, learn these bioinformatics pipelines, you know, physics-based approaches to understanding protein folding or whatever. All of that was fascinating and a little bit of an uphill battle, but but very exciting and, and totally worth the time spent, right? It has enabled me now to sit at the seat of, you know, uh, being able to utilize the, 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 the top technological advances for anything I want, right? I, I'm currently getting to look at, you know, certainly through some of my consulting work, um, you know, I'm getting to look at, uh, you know, applying, you know, deep learning for all sorts of very interesting, you know, health, um, uh, health predictive metrics, right? So we're, you know, you know, optimizing the f- in in the field of radiation oncology, trying to be able to look at CT scans to, you know, uh, uh, minimize radiation to a tumor while fully treating it, while oh, sorry, maximizing radiation to a tumor while fully treating it. And minimizing uh, radiation to off-target effects. This is this is you know 3D image-based processing that I get to do right. And at the same time, I can think in the world of you know oligonucleotide therapeutics and thinking about you know protein folding and, and protein folding dynamics and using deep learning and transforming models, transformer models, to you know be able to predict outcomes there, um, particularly in, in you know understanding protein stability, protein folding conformation, protein binding, etc. Th- these are areas that are so exciting and so meaningful in terms of. Uh, you know, building, building, you know, uh, meaningful applications for patient care that if anybody's interested in science or medicine, I, I have to encourage it, right? The thing I'll put there is that it is more accessible than ever. And this is kind of a double-edged sword, I, I will say, you know, you know, I spent a lot of time throughout my PhD in medical school learning how to be an excellent technical writer, right? Being able to convey my my thoughts very clearly for diverse audiences, et cetera, Right. I also spent a lot of time learning how to code and learning how learning the 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 depth behind you know you know statistical analyses and you know uh, deep learning based fundamentals and understanding how 
that works from a math perspective, right? That is totally accessible to you now, right? And and I have to stress this that, you know, if you are interested in one of these fields, it is, it is, you you've got your own personal tutors, right? I mean, you can go on ChatGPT or Perplexity and just say, teach me to code, teach me to implement this biostats package, right? You know, anything you're interested in doing, you've got your own personal tutor to where this is a much more accessible field. And I would encourage anybody, even without a math or physics-based background like I had, to 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 learn about it. And of course, you'll be responsible and need to understand that, but you you can learn it in a much easier way. And so, um, you know, several examples of that that I still use is, you know, if, if there's a biostats, you know, you know, piece of code that I'm trying to understand, now in R, you can use the get anywhere, you know, um, get anywhere, you know, kind of uh, code prompt and and get the whole, you know, package, put it into ChatGPT and say line by line, you know, teach me what's going on here, right? It's it's very effective for education, understanding the statistics, the approach. Um, and so so I'll, I'll take, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox here, but I do want to say that, you know, I, I am getting to be involved in cutting edge science research and venture companies. And it's very satisfying, especially with the idea of bringing some of these products to, um, uh, to, to patients ultimately. But I have to emphasize that it is totally accessible to to really anyone at this point, and anybody should be able to think about um, if you're interested in STEM. I just want to encourage you to to think that you know computational biology, bioinformatics, these are very exciting fields, but they're not some big bad scary thing. You should learn about them, and it'll be important for future growth and development. So I'll get if off my soapbox. Jump in there if I could jump you know, in real quick. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Um, I think one of the um, superpowers of these technologies is not just the you know science and outcomes it brings, but um, it, it is going to empower and, and democratize this previously higher institution technology to um, all sorts of people, like you mentioned. So I I think it's per- perfectly reasonable and and you know our duty as uh, scientists and engineers to talk about the positive implications that's going to have for all sorts of people. So I'll, I'll yeah. give it back to you to finish your thought there. No, yeah, I mean, I, we feel the exact same way, and, and this is why you know I, I love being your friend. But um, the yeah, so so I I, I have this background. I want to say that double edged sword. You know, now you know my skill set is slightly less useful because anyone can do it, but I'm still very proud of it. Um, and and there's and I, I understand the backing behind it. Um, but I also want to encourage the next wave of scientists to go out and try to do the same thing because I do view that this is going to be. Uh, where a lot of the most exciting innovations are currently happening and will currently ha- and will happen in the next ten years um, for innovation. So, just a point of encouragement there. But the the, the specific question was uh, overview of those fields and the current work within them. So, I think we touched on it a little bit, but um, briefly those those words that I put out there: um, computational biology, right? Is 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 really focused in terms uh, kind of on a physics-based approach, but but you know certainly with deep learning-based approaches as well, trying to understand you know the the oftentimes the cellular world and how it interacts. How do proteins go from a string of amino acids and fold up into a meaningful little entity that can enact change in its environment? How do cell surface receptors bind or enable you know potassium influx or whatever? So so that's kind of the world of computational biology. And there's a structural component with imaging like bioelectromicroscopy and others, that's very interesting, but there's also predictive and pro- components with deep learning or physics-based models, et cetera. Okay. Bioinformatics, you know, <clears throat> is really kind of the coding side of that where you can um, try to understand how you can computationally um, enact things, right? There's certainly like a pipeline-based thing there where you could take, you know, raw genetic data, you know, you might be sequencing um, uh, 
or having other sorts of genetic input and figuring out how to meaningfully process and quality control that data and then do, you know, uh, um, you know, informatics on the back end. That's kind of the world of informatics. That's that's one of the that I really, really love. I love the coding to, uh, you know, uh, outcome or prediction based approaches. That's a lot of fun. Um, there's the AI ML piece, you know, there's, I've got a, a couple papers out on that, but, um, you know, machine learning, deep learning, these would be the ideas of, that's probably too big for me to even uh, summarize here, but a lot of it can be predictive. So trying to use um, uh, deep learning based approaches to predict outcomes from tabular data, like, in, you know, Excel spreadsheet type data to predict, you know, cer certain variables outcomes. It can be image-based where you're trying to uh, understand, you know, diagnostics or, 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 you know, focus on certain points or understand relationships with an image. Or it can be uh, even more abstract than that. There's really cool architectures out there called transformer-based models that uh, you, there's a several good YouTube series that I could maybe link or post here, but just understanding how you can take multiple areas of unstructured data and, um, encoded and decoded and then be able to learn from representations. So, um, uh, and then finally there's statistical genetics. This is the idea of applying statistics to robustly test, um, genetic data for association or causal inference, et cetera, to understand how, you know, um, you know, genetics or epigenetics or, you know, protein folding or et cetera can, um, meaningfully impact, uh, or associate or, 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 or even, be causally linked with outcomes. So I went through that kind of fast, but the basic idea is computational biosciences, those are the areas you get to focus on. It's really the compute side of understanding how, you know, physics, chemistry, biology applied to health, human disease, agricultural science, you know, et cetera. Um, so that, that, that's, that's how I would define those fields. Very well done. I think that was a you know, great overview. Um, you clearly have a lot of ideas about this space and, uh, your formal education, um, certainly has, uh, powered that, uh, for example, you recently gave a fascinating Ted style talk about organ transplant decision-making processes. Uh, could you share your process for contemplating ideas and preparing talking points that resonate with diverse audiences? Yeah, sure. And thanks for uh, looking at my LinkedIn and finding that talk. Um, it was it was a lot of fun to give. For context, um, one of the projects that I've uh, consulted on pretty extensively and one of the ideas that came out of medical school that I've pursued and, and pitched several times and got um, the STTR kind of commercialization grants for is for um, improving informatics within transplantation, right? And the, the one-liner there is there's a lot of really high-quality data that clinicians are integrating on their own as individual data points, and they could be meaningfully integrated into robust, accurate, outcomes-based um, uh, variables for consideration of the time of transplant, right? You know, if we could predict, you know, weightless mortality more accurately, if we could predict transplantation graft survival outcomes, if we could predict length of stay, if we could predict the risk or the likelihood that this organ will be discarded, then that information would be helpful, perhaps, or to have as a high quality granular decision metric with its variance. So, you know, it's confidence interval for a clinician to appreciate when they're trying to, you know, match organs with recipients, right? So that's, that's a really fun problem. It's a very complicated problem that we've been working on for several years. Um, but I, I, I love getting to work on that one. But the basic idea here is I was invited to give a TED talk, TED style talk. It wasn't TED, TED style talk, uh, to, uh, uh the kind of the transplantation, uh, main conference, um, this past May. 
And part of that is that they hired a um, coach to help me prepare this talk, which was unbelievable experience, right? They hired a coach that does all the TED style coaching as well um, to help walk me through what that process might look like. And there's a few pieces of feedback that I'd love to share here just for anybody that's trying to prepare a talk. Um, and, you know, the the first thing was, you know, I had to think about who my audience was, right? I've I've looked at the technical details of this problem. I've talked to it to, you know, just friends and family and neighbors. And so I've, you know, kind of over the years gotten a sense of what um, resonates with different people, what are people interested in. Uh, but the first thing, whenever you're going to be talking, is to try to think about who your audience is, right? You know, for, for this podcast, you know, I was trying to think about this is probably a lot of uh, individuals interested or already in STEM fields, thinking about uh, commercialization, et cetera. And so I've hopefully tried to tailor that to this um, particular audience, right? And that's the first piece of advice is just try to think, who are you talking to? What do they understand? What don't they understand? I truly believe that there's not that big of a um, uh, a difference in anyone's intelligence that you're really talking to. So it's really just about getting people up to speed uh, and trying to help them quickly get through the key points of information um, so that um, they can be uh, at the same understanding and then and then think through rationally what, what might come next. Um, so when I am contemplating ideas and preparing talking points that would resonate, you try to think who your audience is. Second is you got to start with a story, right? If, you know, I didn't hear, I guess I told you a little bit about my story, but if you're going to try to draw somebody in, you, you want them to relate. So either a personal story about you, in this case, you know, I, I think what I focus on, you can watch that talk if you want, was just trying to understand what my background is, why I'm particularly interested in the problem of transplant informatics, why I think that could drive incremental change, and why I'm personally invested in it. You know, these would be the the, the piece of information that should be intentionally thought about and conveyed very simply, right? The other thing would be to use analogies, right? A really good analogy can totally drive your point home. Um, in the case of transplant informatics, we settled on the analogy of Google Maps. Uh, so the idea would be saying, hey, you know, we didn't really know we needed uh, maps or Google Maps or whatever you want to use. But as soon as we had it on our iPhones, you know, for, you know, people love using it, right? It didn't stop us from you know, charting out our own course in the head, but it gave us real-time information of what different courses might look like in terms of time to get there, traffic, problems along the way. And it would be updated in real time, right? If, if new information came to the table, it could give you a new route that you might not have thought of before um, because that might be the most appropriate route given the different considerations, right? The other piece of information, that analogy that was helpful was that you know, you still stay in the driver's seat. Google Maps isn't driving you there or picking your route. It just is giving you the most update, real-time information for your consideration in your decision-making to get from A to B, right? This was the analogy that we thought would resonate really well with the clinicians in the room um, because they would be able to think, okay, you know, providing an information dashboard with high-quality granular decision metrics that uh, integrate all the data available would be helpful to help try to understand what's the best point from A to B, which organ goes to which recipient, while it still gives keeps some in the driver's seat of making the ultimate decisions and provides insight into how those decisions might be made. So that that's maybe a little bit too far into the weeds of that particular presentation, but the idea holds true of a really good analogy can really help bring a diverse audience with different you know technical backgrounds to the same place in terms of understanding your problem and why you're interested in it. Two, making it clear as to why you are motivated. You're not, this is a key differentiator also in, in venture too. You know, want, you want people to understand that you're a missionary, not a mercenary, right? You, you know, would work, whether it's true or not, 
you would work on this problem for free, even if it was just you because you want to see it come to market, whether there's a commercial incentive or not. That's a much more powerful and hopefully true. I mean, in these cases, everything I've worked on, that's that's how I feel. But you know, it's an important selling point really to be able to say, hey, I'm not being paid to do this. I'm not going to just be collecting my paycheck because I get to work on this problem that someone else thinks is good. I am driving this. I want to see this come to market. I want to see this happen for X, Y, Z, right? That's the second thing that you want to convey when you're doing public speaking. So last thing, and this is something that I haven't followed at all today, is you got to speak slow. You know, I, I've got a lot I wanted to condense into this. And so hopefully I didn't speak too fast today. But when you're giving a formal presentation to an audience, right, it is never a problem to have a pregnant pause and to speak slowly and to let people think through what you're going through and what you're presenting to the table, right? And so speak slow, think through your audience, um, have a story or analogy. Um, those are the things I think about when I'm doing public speaking. And that's what this, you know, this coach was able to imbue in me. So I, I really got to give credit to her. So that was, that was excellent. Thanks for sharing those, Roland. Those, those are certainly tips I think we all can implement. I, I certainly will. Um, I really like the analogy, how that can drive home. And the Google Maps one was really, really good. Like when you said that in the talk, I, I immediately grasped it. And um, I, I think that's an excellent way of, uh, you know, helping to have a diverse audience understand uh, um, the point you're talking about. Um, and you, you seem to be talking at a fine speed for me. I mean, this is uh, complicated material that I may be more familiar with than my audience. Um, but uh, you don't seem to have much trouble with the words coming out, but is there ever a time when you experience difficulty putting your ideas into words? And is there a structured or a creative process you follow to break through writer's block? Yeah, I think this problem has been solved again in 2020, I mean, 2022 with ChatGPT, I'm not going to lie. So what, I, I do view that writer's block, at least for me and my experience, it's not so much that I don't have ideas. The problem is when I write down an idea and then immediately start to try to edit it, then I forget the next ideas, right? And so what I like to do whenever I have to really do anything, right? Applications to uh, med school, PhD, MBA school, right? Appli uh, you know, residency applications. Uh, when I am thinking about writing a grant, particularly for grant writing, right? Um, or when I'm trying to do like an investment memo for a company, or if I'm trying to think through, you know, you know, friendly but polite criticisms, right? If you, if you, uh, of companies, right? If you just, if you just try to start writing, you're not going to like your writing tone. You're not going to like your style. You're going to be thinking of ways that you could say things more politely or more friendly or more warmly, right? And you're going to get stuck. And so the, the, the one-liner is like, and this is kind of cheesy, but this is what I do. I put on dictate, you know, either on my phone or, you know, I have a little hotkey. I did a little hotkey on my computer. I put on dictate, I open up a Word document. I just close my eyes and I just try to answer the question, right? I try to write it all out. And, and I just kind of word vomit. I don't care about grammar. I don't care about structure. I just do it. And then ever since 2022, I just copy that into ChatGPT and say, structure my thoughts, right? I just literally say, structure these thoughts or, or edit for grammar, edit, minimal, edit minimally, edit for clarity and content, you know, whatever, whatever it is, uh, ChatGPT, perplexity, those are the two that I kind of like. Bard is getting good now too. So just copy it in and edit it. And then boom, it comes back with your raw output now in some structured way. And sometimes the way they structure it, I like, and I think, okay, that is good. I can mention this point and this point is this point. Sometimes I hate it and I got to iterate, but you have your your iteration tool. You know, previously I relied on friends, family, and parents to do this, where I would send people texts and just bother the heck out of them saying like, hey, can you edit this email? Can Emails is another one. Can you edit this email? Can you edit this 
paragraph. You know, I've got this grant. Can you look at this, whatever. And, and, and that was high quality feedback, but it took time, right? I could sit there with Bard, Perplexity, ChatGPT, and just edit for hours and just say, iterate, iterate, iterate. And so that's, that's what I think is the key to writer's block. Close your eyes, hit dictate, word vomit, right? And then say, structure my thoughts and then go from there. And then you've got, you've got, you've got stuff on the page. It's much easier to write when you've got stuff on the page because then you're editing, you're not creating new content. So that's my thing I would hope to share. And I think that it works for me and I, I hope it can work for some other people too. I love it. I'm personally a huge fan of dictation as you, you know, in uh, Rice Ignite last year, I probably mentioned it to you. I'm, I'm, I really think there's a power of dictation that we haven't unlocked yet. You know, the, the idea of talking to yourself, um, it, I think is very powerful and I encourage everyone to try it as, as you just did. And um, uh, moreover, I remember last year you said, that you use ChatGPT or you know other, they have not come to uh, to market now, but other sort of transformer-based large language models. To you used it every day, and it, this is a very um, powerful tool that I think everyone could at least benefit from trying out. Um, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that's an excellent answer. Yeah, the the last thing I'd say there is, I think I think maintaining a healthy and active network is incredibly important. People in social capital is the best thing that you can maintain and should be protected and also intentionally maintained. And every interaction you have with people is kind of building that. And so I I, I don't see why, I mean, every email I write, even no matter how small, I put in ChatGPT or Perplexity or Bard, and I just say, edit for grammar and clarity. Or I say, make, you know, direct, polite, and warm, you know, just to be succinct, but just to have that little bit of sophistication. It's free. It's like, why not? It takes an extra 10 seconds. And all my emails are really polished, I think. And it just it just conveys a sense of sophistication and caring with who you're talking to, right? Um, so I, I do use it every day. I mean, I, I, I like max out the limits on GPT-4 all the time, just because I'm like, edit this, edit this, edit this. I just want to be constantly investing in that, um, not social capital, but just, you know, professionalism in working in my environment with other people. I want to convey that and kind of give that respect or whatever. Um, so, so I do, I do think that more and more people will incorporate that into their workflows very substantially. Certainly. Great points. Uh, let's do, uh, one more, maybe two. I really like 13. Yeah. Um, the one about inspiration. So let, let's do, oh, it's tough. What, do you want to do one more or both of those? Let's do them. Whatever. I've got time. All right. All right, man. Uh, let's jump into 11. <clears throat> Gut instinct or intuition often contract. Oh, let me hold on a sec. <clears throat> Trying to think if I need to uh, structure this better. Um, I'll just, I'm just going to say it. It doesn't really particularly need to segue. Some of our other ones don't yeah. have it. Gut instinct or intuition often contrasts with calculated, well thought out decisions. Yet both can hold equal value. How do you balance the use of gut instincts with analytical data in your decision-making process? Can you share an example where your intuition played a key role in a significant business decision? Yeah, this is a great question, and I think you know there's some very public people that have made commentary on this effect. You know, I, I did get my MBA, and. Uh, I think it's a very valuable degree, but there's several notable people that kind of don't like MBAs because they think they bring too much uh, structure or analytical processes to the table where it might not be justified, right? Not everything can have a discounted cash flow. And I think I see that and I think that's there. But the, the point may, is maintained, right? You know, when you are looking at tech that isn't 
well fleshed out, it's kind of inappropriate and might it might bias your decision making to try to think too granularly about it, right? This is kind of why I like early stage investing as opposed uh, so far. I mean, I haven't again done later stage investing, but I like early stage investing is because you get to be a little bit of an optimist, right? You get to believe, see, try to dream the glimmer of greatness for a new technology and try to think through, can this hold innovative, you know, or, or incremental, more than incremental change to be transformative, right? That's fun. And, and, and sometimes that's more gut than anything else. You got to, you know, you got to bring data to the table and defend your position, but you know, some of that is gut driven. Um, and so I think those can be held in balance and there's an appropriate use for that there to be an optimist um, and to wait manually weight data rather than just objectively weight data as it's coming in um, in terms of your own personal kind of hierarchization. An example of that um, uh, was consulting for a company previously, it's still uh, in Form AI. And you know we get a lot of different pitches in terms of companies or tech that people want to commercialize, right? And so the idea is, you know, we're looking at uh, informatics and healthcare, trying to use deep learning and machine learning to, um, you know, enable high quality efficiency, quality, safety, standardization practices in clinical care, right? That's a very niche product. And unless there's a market to drive it, it there's there's so many different interesting technologies that aren't necessarily venture backable, venture um, sustainable. And we have to be a little bit judicious with our time, you know, in terms of you know, what's what, what What do we have time to work on and what do we don't? Um, so again, as I thought about it, the other side, if, as I thought about it as an investor with the layers of risk, so too it applies as an operator trying to think about, okay, early stage company, you don't want to lose focus. You have to think about what actually has a market size to develop, you know, and then of course, you know, what's going to bring a transformative change in terms of patient care and quality of delivery of patient care. And so those are things we think about. But there are some times where, you know, you know, even if the objective metrics aren't on the table, you do want to pursue something. And um, one of those was, you know, with some really early and interesting technology coming out of UT Southwestern um, in the form of uh, deep learning and radiation oncology. And, and there were some great data points behind it. So I'm not trying to say it was totally gut instinct, but um, there, there, there was a high quality team that would put together some really good medical uh, technology, as I already kind of previewed previously for, um, uh, you know, optimizing to, uh, optimizing radiation delivery to a tumor while minimizing constraints to healthy tissue nearby. And it just, it just struck me and the gut is like, this is, this is really exciting. And so honestly, even if, even if they had, they had a lot of good data points at their disposal in terms of um, their implementation in the clinic, et cetera. But um, uh, even if they hadn't, I, I was really wanting to chase that down either way. Um, and it was m truly more of confirmation as I was learning about the market and learning about the uh, the ability to product develop in this space um, that was driving me. And of course I was taking them on balance, but I have to admit that, you know, that was an exciting technology. And I think it, and I think it was good. And, and at any point along the way, if there was a killer, you know, thing, we would have, we would have, you know, politely said, we, we can't push this forward, but it is an exciting technology and it's worth pursuing. Um, but that was initial gut that kind of drove me chasing that down, at least in the initial stages. Roland, that was a fascinating answer, uh, an example to um, how you use gut instincts to, you know, power some of your business decisions. Uh, we're going to keep along with the uh, philosophical meta side of contemplation and decision making here. And it's going to be our last question. Uh, inspiration is often a guiding force in finding answers to questions. 
When do you seek out inspiration as opposed to charting your own course? This is a great question, Lewis, and thanks so much for asking it. I mean, I think if we just take a step back, attention should be paid to staying humble, right? Like you you can very quickly, you know, think an idea is good and chase it down in your head. And unless you're sampling your environment or soliciting feedback, you could be pursuing meaningless efforts, right? With regards to inspiration, I don't think in any way that that is necessarily fully self-obtained. I think ways that I try to sample my environment and seek, you know, information is is several fold, right? I mean, on the personal side, I, I do have a, a a personal faith that I maintain. Outside of that, I I really try to seek mentorship and maintain mentorship with people that are smarter than me. And I think there's there's so many people, pretty much most people I meet, I think there is learnings to be obtained. You know, people have such rich experiences that it's uh, kind of hard-hearted to not think that everybody you meet has something to teach you. And so going going with that perspective, in terms of seek out inspiration versus charting your own course, I, I do try to maintain regular mentorship um, and intentional mentorship with people that I very much look up to through following up on phone calls. I have a, a contact management thing that I built in Notion just to try to at least where I downloaded my LinkedIn contacts and imported them. You can do this. It's uh, I think it's free, but and then I at least tried to just filter and, and and sort to where I've got you know a you know a core set of individuals that I really want to keep in touch with and continue to learn from them and not you know be so focused on charting my own course that I I miss those regular touch points, etc. Um, on, on the on the on the flip side, you know I I do think there is you know people in the VC world talk about being con- contrarian. There is something to be said about that, right? If everybody's interested or knows about something or is doing something, then the the ship has probably already sailed, right? There there might, you know, there's probably enough people working on it, maybe, that um it's not necessarily as interesting. So there is something also to thinking internally and having your own personal conviction and thought to what you think might be interesting to pursue, um, even if you're not getting that positive uh, signal from the outside. So a little bit of a hand wavy question. I don't think there's gonna be like a a definitive playbook there, but I would say that it's important to actively maintain a, a, a strong personal network of people you respect um, so that you can solicit feedback quickly and efficiently and learn, um, but then also um, trying to think deep and, and have some personal convictions because that's that's seems to be where some of the, the best um, innovation happens as well. So that's how, that's how I think about it anyways. Well done. I, I completely agree. The uh, I think a good takeaway is it's a healthy balance. Um, we're recording this in January, so it's not too late to have a New Year's resolution. Exactly. Uh, I, I think it's a really great summary, Roland. It was a pleasure to have you on. Uh, I, I will be listening to this again once, maybe twice, uh, just because of all of the valuable insights you had. So uh, thank you again. Absolutely, Lewis. And I can't wait to hear yours. You're you're one of those guys I think smarter than me. So I want to hear I want to hear and learn from you here soon on the podcast. So uh, you're next up. Uh, 